Well, good morning, everyone. And if you want to follow the words, um, they'll appear on the screen um, behind me. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. And before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they replied. This fellow came here as a foreigner and now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But the men reached inside, the, the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness so that they could not find the door. The two men said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here, because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said, Hurry, get out of this place because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. With the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, Hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here or you'll be swept away when the city is punished. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and of his two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. And as soon as they had brought them out, one of them said, Flee for your lives. Don't look back and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains or you'll be swept away. Now we go to another place in the, in the scriptures and this time it's from 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 2 
and we're going to read verses 6 to 9. If God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man, who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless, for that righteous man, living among them day after day, was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. I got a statement for you to think through. I'll explain it as we go along today and hopefully at the end you'll go, ah, I get it, even if it doesn't make sense now. Experience is a schoolyard for our theology. Experience is a schoolyard for our theology. Don't worry, I'm not advocating anything new or slippery. Hopefully, just giving a title to something you already know very well. Our encounter with God through his word is what the spirit uses to change us and experience is where our theology lands on the ground. You could see, if you like diagrams, you might like this diagram. You can see it visualized here. Scripture, reason, experience, tradition. Because after all, theology is the application of scripture to all areas of human life. The living God saves us to a living hope which means our faith informs and it governs all we do, think and say. But not all those categories have equal weight. The primary or ultimate norm is Scripture. The way that God reveals himself in the Bible. Which means the wonderful teachings of the Bible, such as grace, confessing sin, joy, the hope of heaven, they're to be lived out and experienced. And so we can say that experience is the schoolyard for our theology when we take what we read and pray, how God is shaping us in his image, challenging and changing us, and then we live that out. But of course, experience is secondary, it's not primary, it's not absolute. Experience simply inspires and validates what the gospel teaches us and is doing in us. Put it another way, we read and pray because we love Jesus a bit and we want to be more like him, and then every day, under God, by his Spirit, we get to live that out in all the situations we find ourselves in. So why do I say that to begin today's talk? Well, in 2023, we're beginning the year by looking at our resolves for the year, our spiritual habits, so we can grow in our love and our awe of Jesus, all for the glory of God. But as can happen, you and me sometimes just drift along in life. And our experience is not necessarily informed by Scripture. I am dull, I am distracted, I am forgetful, I often don't like what I read about God, I find it hard, I neglect meeting together, the hurry, worry, busy of life overwhelms and soon we're just caught in a spiritual rip, drifting out to sea, influenced away from the grace of God in the Gospel. Maybe you've felt that. Maybe you've started the year very well and four weeks into January, you're already drifting out to sea a little bit. But hey, this is where our reading from Lot comes into it. Because Lot's an example of the drift that can happen in our life. But as 2 Peter 
the second reading told us, Lot is considered righteous. And that's a curious thing, given how he behaved from Genesis 19. But for all his flaws, all his faults, he knew God. He was hospitable, greatly concerned about the city he was living in, even if he was way too influenced by that place himself. And we see today, by the grace and mercy of God alone, there is hope for you and me as well for a divine rescue for drifting people, the life raft. Like what you and me may experience as we drift along, which means as we look at Lot's story, the point today isn't don't be like Lot. It's when you realize you are Lot, embrace the divine rescue in Jesus. Because judgment is real, sin is serious, but in Jesus, we're forgiven and we're made righteous to live righteously. And as Jesus gives us a vision of a heavenly city to run towards, so let's be resolved about living well, careful not to drift away as we begin the year. So come with me and look at Lot's life. And it goes all the way back, begins in Genesis chapter 11. The first thing we see is that Lot knew God, Lot knew Yahweh God. Now, Lot is the nephew of Abraham, and his father, Haram, died while he was living in Ur, that's a place. And Terah, Lot's grandfather, they were living as a family, and it was so distressed that Haram had died, he moved his family to a new home, and actually settled in a place named the same as his deceased son. And then in Genesis 12, when God speaks to Abraham and tells him, Lob, land, offspring, blessing, that great promise. Abraham goes back to Canaan and Lot goes with him, following Yahweh God as well. We learn as well that Abraham and Lot are very, very wealthy people. Now, in agrarian times, what did that mean? You had lots of animals and lots of people to help rear and steer those particular animals. So, Lot is a wealthy man, Abraham's a wealthy man, they both know God, so far, so good, let's see what happens next. Well, A problem arises in Genesis 13. Conflict happens between Lot and Abraham's people. The size of their animals is so big, they cannot find enough land for them to eat. And so eventually, the herdsmen get into a fight in chapter, in verse 6 and 7 of Genesis 13. And Abraham steps in and says, I think we need to do something about this. And so he decides they should separate. So he goes to a hill and says, Lot, come up here, buddy. Um, Go first. And where do you want to go and live? And you just just go that way, whatever looks good or whatever. You just pick the place you want to go and I'll go the opposite direction so we have enough space. And in 13.10, Lot looked around and saw the whole plain of the Jordan towards Zoar was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. Lot noticed the Jordan Valley. It looked like a really great place to take as a new home. Remember, you have herds and animals, lots of water, lots of grass, thumbs up. It reminded him of the Garden of Eden. Not that he was there, but he would have heard stories. The land was materialistically beautiful. It would give him all he needed for a good life and his herds. It was a very perfectly good logical decision to make, right? I mean, why wouldn't you choose the best land for your animals and your family? And just stop and think. Do not we do the same thing in life? Many of you have looked for new jobs last year, at the beginning of this year. And we look for the best job. We want to raise our kids in the best home, what will give them the best things and stuff and education. We make decisions based on what looks best and what will give me the greatest return. And of course, there's lots of sense in that. When two options are there, why would you choose the one that looks worse? But the writer of Genesis gives us a clue here. 
at the end of verse 10, that should start to get our minds thinking this wasn't such a good idea. And that Lot, for all his righteousness, wasn't letting his theology of God inform his decision-making. Because sometimes the better option is waiting on God, allowing his vision to shape you, and what may look really good from a materialistic perspective can actually be theologically deadly. The rest of verse 10 says, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Lots of the hill in front of him is great wealth and potential for a future. In front of you is 2023, metaphorically, great potential for wealth and a future. But there is a city right next to where Lot looks out that was filled with cruelty and a way of life that didn't glorify God. And Lot willingly chose to live a little bit closer to Sodom than before because it had the greatest returns. He's on the very edge of a city, living on the plain, that could potentially let a whole new narrative influence his story, his life. And we leave Lot there. He separates the law. Um, Abraham goes one way, Lot goes the other, and then the slow drift begins. The next time we meet Lot is in Genesis 14, and it simply says he's not living on the plains near Sodom. It says he's dwelling in Sodom from the fields to the city. And there's a pause. And 19 years pass. Then we hear of Lot again. Sodom and Gomorrah, the city hasn't changed in those 19 years, and this is where we get to Genesis 19. It's only become more hostile to God and humanity. The end of chapter 18 says God has seen and heard all the evil that people are doing, so he's going to come down and check it out for himself. You know God knows the injustice and the sin in the world? He's aware of it. He's more aware of it than you and me. His assessment is far more confronting than yours or I. And his intent is to now judge Sodom and Gomorrah after years and years and years and years of his grace to them in allowing them to thrive and perhaps feel their way back towards him. But 19, 20 years can change a person. And it certainly did a lot. Because he's not just living on the plain, he's not just living in the city now, but he has a reputation in the city. Long gone are the herds and the flocks. Lot now sits at the city gates. The city gates had seats recessed in the walls. And you would sit at those gates if you were a position of authority. This was a business and the cultural hub of the day. And Lot was sitting at the gates in the middle of Sodom and Gomorrah as an influential person. The fields to the city to now being a part of that culture. And on this particular day, in Genesis 19, God's messages come. And Lot, who's still hospitable, who's still aware of Yahweh in all of this, greets these messengers and he shows wonderful hospitality, doesn't he? But he also knows how hostile this place can be. And he wants to be different. And he says, come to my house, it's safe. He urges them, doesn't he? Quickly, come, come and stay with me. And they say, no, we'll just stay night in the square. And he says, don't do that. You know, the, the city is typically safer than the countryside in Lot's day. But the fact that this city was so horrible a place at night is telling. But we'll also see that as much as Lot was kind and righteous, he was so far away from God's intent that even though, even though he was still upset at how evil this city was. And unless God shapes our vision for life, we will always let another influence do that. So Lot takes them home, and later that night, a terrible, horrible series of events happens. And, and this really is the, the pointy part. A group of men, young and old, surround Lot's house, making him a prisoner. 
demanding those two uh, men come out so they can abuse them. And notice, notice Lot's response. He knows humanity is made in God's image, and to do such a thing would violate them. And he says, don't do it. And he nudges urgently, and he calls them friends. You pick that? Friends, don't do that. He's gently soft. But his drift into Sodom hasn't just been a physical progression. Here's where Lot's theology has moved and shifted. He keeps his hospitable welcome up. He wants to protect the guests. Good on you, Lot. Sure, do that. But his moral compass has been so influenced by the magnet of Sodom. One commentator has said, Sodom has taken up residence in Lot's soul because in this horrible twist, he says, take my daughters instead. That's horrible. This is not a story to imitate. Do not ever think that. This is not a good thing. And Lot's reputation after 19 years is crumbling to pieces because when he says, friends don't do it, he says, they say to him, ah, you're the foreigner. 19 years of building a life and he's still the foreigner and the outsider. There is such a divide between the city and him, they could never embrace him. And thankfully, none of the horrors actually happen. The angels intervene and urgently tell Lot and his family to leave the city. And so Lot goes and tells his kids and their fiancés, hey, we've got to get out of here. But notice how the theological drift means he's got no credibility anymore. His sons-in-law, what do they do? Laugh at his words. They think he's joking. We have to go. God's coming. <laughs> no, we're not going. And then Lot himself doesn't even leave. He's apathetic to the warnings of God. And then in verse 16, the Lord has mercy on Lot and pulls him out of the city. They don't respond to Lot and say, suit yourself. Um, They're gracious to him and him and his wife and his daughters run out. But as you may know, Lot's wife, as they were running out, looked back and she died. And so she looked over her shoulder. But this isn't just a casual glance, like, oh, I see something, and off I go. This is being torn. This is a moment of hesitation and awareness that she does not want to lose what God is supposedly saving her from in that city. Her divided heart ultimately costs her her life. And then it all ends in verse 25, where God overthrows the city and the vegetation in the land, it says. You see, the very things that attracted Lot to this place, the vegetation, the prosperity, it's gone. And then, we didn't read it, but the very end of Genesis 19, verses 30 to 38, is the very last word of Lot in the Old Testament. And it's really devastating. It spirals down, and it does not get any better. Lot and his daughters may have left the city, but the city hasn't left them. They end up getting pregnant by their dad, unknown to him. And so Lot's story ends. But in the midst of this, you think, what on earth are we going to say about that? In the midst of this, God uses flawed, sinful people for his purpose. It's just like a publisher distributes a book, but does not necessarily agree with everything written in that book. We may say that in relation to sin, and especially here, God is like the publisher, not the author. He's not for it, but he uses it. You see, one of the kids born to Lot's daughters is called Moab. And as history goes on, we see that another character called Ruth comes from the family line of Lot's child, Moab. 
And then Ruth meets someone called Boaz, her husband. And where's Boaz from? The line of Abraham. Lot and Abraham's families will meet again, not to separate, but to join together. And the child that Boaz and Ruth have now paves the way for the greatest king to enter the world. A king not over a city, but who reigns over the lives of flawed, sinful people. A king who never drifted into sin and apathy. A king who came down and saw us in all our sin to rescue us from the evil of our own hearts and minds that we do against God. A king who ultimately died not for his sin and evil, like Sodom, but for ours. So that we can be like Lot, divinely rescued and head towards not just a plot of land, but a heavenly city. Giving us his spirit to inform and guide us in the schoolyard of life so that we can now live for his glory. And so, with Lot's life in that brief overview laid bare, I want to leave us with two observations for us to consider, and they are choices and influence. Choices and influence. To help navigate life, we resolve to follow Jesus. And if you're here today and you're not quite ready to trust Jesus for your rescue, I invite you to consider what we've said and what we'll say now and and can think, what would it be like to have this God influencing my life and decisions? So, you know, Lot's story began not in Genesis 19, but back when he was looking over at the Jordan River. He saw the green fields and the potential for an easy life. He chose what looked best, not what was best wasn't the greenfields being a problem, it was the closeness to the city that didn't have God's vision for life. Sometimes what may look harmless at the time can set us drifting slowly down a path that means I'm making little decisions that are turning away from God. Just little ones, right? Your life is lived in a thousand little decisions, not the big ones. And those little ones inform the big ones. So pay careful attention. Last time I was on a plane, I noticed when they do the safety demonstration at the beginning, most people did not pay attention, Um, didn't listen to the cabin crew. Partly, I think most people have flown before, so they've heard it a thousand times, ah, this is the thing to distract us from the takeoff sort of thing. But I also reckon most people imagine they'll just kind of figure it out if they ever need it. Like if the mask pops down, what do you do? You just stare at it and go, oh, what's this thing? No, no, people, I think they'll figure it out and put it on their face, right? Or they think it won't happen to them, so why bother? Now, I think that safety demonstration is sometimes how you and me approach our relationship to God. To be honest, we're a little bit like snails in the way and the work of God, slowly drifting, ignorant, distracted at times, not paying attention. Because Lot is ultimately a torn, divided figure, and he still wants to stay as close to Sodom as possible, even as it's being destroyed. The, the angels say, go far, far away, and he says, uh, how about just a, the next town over? Just close enough that I can still be, be around. And so, yes, the hurry, worry, busy of life, the mortgage, the sickness, a few more hours at work, and an extra thing are not horrible, but... Are they causing a divided tension in you? Have you ever felt that way? That subtle drift that happens? So keep a close eye on the gospel and all your decision-making and choices. 
Peter, at the beginning of his letter, reminds us we've been given everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and goodness. Don't let the glory of the gospel, the greatness of Jesus, be like those airplane safety instructions this year. And finally, influence. A recent survey at a local high school just in our area said to the year 12 students, what do you want to be when you leave school? What's the number one career pathway that students want to be? What do you think it is? An influencer. Number one career choice of all the 16-year-olds in that class, in this school want to be is an influencer. Now, an influencer is named that because their whole job is to influence someone, to move someone to a particular diet or clothing or philosophy or choosing them for your entertainment needs or makeup brand, right? They want to influence you to something. Now, in Lot's case, the city was his influencer. The culture of Sodom was not sharing God's vision. And that meant righteous Lot was affected and influenced by the city he lived in, causing him and his family to live between God's intent and what the city wanted. Now, that's typical for a Christian to live in that tension. Don't hear that and say we should leave the city or anything. But the guiding norm for Lot in his decision-making in life was not God or God's word. Therefore, it's good to ask yourself, what are your influences? Satan, sin, temptation will seek to influence you away from God every time. Again, Peter writes, our adversary prowls around like a roaring lion, but the company of Christians in our gathering here help us move towards Jesus. The gathering is God's mercy. 80 little influences or so here surrounding us. All under God for his glory heading in the same direction to a heavenly city, to the place Jesus has prepared for you and me. And along the road of life, our theology of God is practical. It must be. You cannot know the living God without it changing your life. It is meant for everyday living. The gospel of Jesus is built for the schoolyard of life. And when we find ourselves being like Lot, and I'm sure you will, and I will too from time to time, divided, drifting, and distracted, would you resolve in 2023 to quickly confess and repent and turn back to the grace of God in Jesus and find the divine rescue that you need? So let's start the year well, under God for his glory, aware of the drift. And hey, because we're influencing one another towards Jesus, over coffee and and this week, where do you feel that drift just think about it for a moment. Where do you feel that drift in your own heart? And you'll know. It'll be different for me, different for you, but you'll feel it. And why not share with someone what that is and then commit to praying for that person this week? So what I'm going to do now is I'll close in prayer, but I'll I'll give you just one moment to think of that drifting area in your own life. I'm going to pray for that. And after I've prayed, we're going to sing to our great God and Saviour. Lord Jesus, on our hearts and minds in this room are attitudes and thoughts, desires, you name it, things in our life that cause us to drift away from the glory and awe and joy of you. And we, um, we lay them before you in prayer asking that you would have your way with them so that we can be resolved to follow you, not drifting or distracted, 
but seeking you and your glory and goodness and grace every day of 2023. Father, you know the challenges that they are, you know the temptations they are, yet, Father, you give us everything we need for living a godly life for your glory and goodness. So may your spirit convict and challenge us and may you graciously help us as your people to live for you this year. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.